Welcome back to the Embedded Lisa podcast. I'm Lisa Welsh and you are in the right place if you're looking for shame-free sex education to help you to unlock your sexual potential and have more fun in bed. Today I'm having a great conversation I'm going to be sharing with you with Ronald Adenal and we're going to be talking about psychosexual human development. Okay, that's a big word. And what we mean is, and what Ron is going to unpack, is how does pleasure come about? How do we discover what is pleasurable to us? Why are some things pleasurable to us and other things not? Why do different people find different things pleasurable? We're going to be talking about fetishes. Why do some people find feet a turn on? We're going to be normalizing and validating people with all different kinds of fetishes, even the ones that you might find or you might think are more confusing, like you might not understand where they come from. This is a shame-free and welcoming conversation about that. We're also going to be talking about sexual orientation. How does that develop? And we'll also be covering gender. There is so much to cover here. This conversation is one of my favorites that I've had on the show. I can't wait to hear what you think. If you have any feedback, come and chat to me on Twitter at InBedWithLisa. I'm here for your conversations. And if you have a question you'd like to keep anonymous, email me, hello at InBedWithLisa.com. And now let's welcome Ron to the show. So today on Embed with Lisa for Sandcastle Radio, I am delighted to be joined by somebody who I have admired for a long time and have had the pleasure of meeting in person and seeing him speak in person, which is why I knew I had to have him on the show. Ronald Adenal, he is a clinical social worker, sexologist and academic at the University of Cape Town. He has 29 years of professional practice experience. Ron is internationally regarded as an expert in sex therapy and sexual health, as well as in the particular areas of erotology, transgender and gender diverse, gender affirming psychosocial healthcare. That is a mouthful. Congratulations on all of those wonderful things, Ron. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lisa, and thank you for getting all of that out. And it's a pleasure being here, and thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm as keen to be having the conversation with you because I, one thing that stands out for me with our interactions and seeing your social media and online is your passion um, for an absolutely sex-positive approach to all things human sexuality. Thank you. Oh, that's so kind of you to say. I'm glad that comes across. And Ron, there's something actually that I wanted to just clear up. Now, when I described your bio just now, I said he has. And I actually wanted to just make sure that I had said that correctly. In your bio, you have a few different pronouns. So please, could you just correct me and just let our audience know a little bit about that, if you don't mind? Sure. So the the he pronoun is one of the pronouns I'm comfortable with. So I identify as non-binary. Um, I was assigned male at birth, and um, there are aspects of masculinity that sits okay and comfortable with me, but there's also aspects that I, that with the traditional and the typical is definitely not part of my core gender identity. So I I identify as gender non-binary, so using both he, him, or they, them pronouns are comfortable for me, so either are, are good. Wonderful. Thank you so much for clarifying that. So last week, I had another incredible person in the world of sexology on the show, Dr. Patty, and she spoke, yeah, you know her well. So she spoke about sex and aging. And she alluded to the fact that sexual, like our sexuality and our, our 
sexual beingness, if you like, exists from when we're in the womb until we take our dying breath. And so I thought, let's bring you in to talk about those earlier stages, which I know sometimes makes people feel uncomfortable. So to give it its big title, I would love for you to chat just freely today, share your knowledge on psychosexual childhood development. Like what even is that and what do we need to know? Excellent. Oh, thank you. And to follow on the legend who is Patty is, is, is an absolute privilege. Um, we've done so much work with Patty and the people she's trained with regards to the SARS. And Lisa, you were part of the Sasha, one of our Sasha SARS. Um, so yeah, just you know, kudos and honors to, to Patty. Um, yeah, so with, with Patty kind of addressing, um, not kind of addressing the other end of the psychosexual development spectrum, which is old age. Um, and, you know, there's a lot, and I'm sure you guys discussed a lot in regards to how, you know, when people get older, how their sexuality is often invisibilized. Um, but what is often also not always understood and appreciated and easily discussed is in understanding and appreciating human sexuality, we need to know and understand that, you know, you, your sexuality, sometimes people have this impression that, you know, when you're an adolescent and you go through puberty, somehow some switches are now suddenly coming on and you are now a beginning sexual person who's now going to feel the rush of hormones and, you know, mm. and then somehow in, you know, in, in early adulthood, you're going to experiment and explore and by adulthood, you know, you've hopefully figured out, you know, your sexuality. But what is not uh, um, often understood and known is that your journey with pleasure and your journey that, be, you know, that is about your psychosexual development start, starts much earlier than that. Mm. Um, essentially, um, the, the one area of our focus is, you know, about um, what happens in the development of a fetus in the womb. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I'm a psychosocial practitioner, so I'm not going to, you know, attempt to, uh, you know, address the, the, the biological, etc. But the, I kind of, the, the dummies guide shorthand is that we do know that there, you know, as much as every human fetus has shared developmental experiences in the womb, there are also diverse experiences mm. of development in the womb from anatomical development, neurological development, endocrinological development, um, you know, etc. And part of what's happening in the development of the fetus is so neurologically, um, you know, the, the capacity for the, the fetus to actually, for its senses to start, you know, the senses come into existence, basically, you know, by the time the the infant is born. So the mm. infant is already a feeling, experiencing entity in womb development. And then also with all of the other uh, developmental factors that or uh, events that are happening, the one way I explain it when I teach this to my students is it's, we need to kind of understand that as the fetus is developing, unique templates are basically being set in place. Mm -hmm. um, and these templates across human beings, there'll be a lot that is shared and similar, but there will also be that which is unique and individual. And also, um, we often talk about the concept of spectrums, and that already comes into, into it's, it's already applied at this stage within the womb. You know, because there's such diversity of, of, of developmental 
uh, events that can be happening. So these templates are diverse as well. So what we do know, for example, essentially fundamentally is whatever a person's potential sexual orientation, for example, is going to be, you know, once they grow as a, as, as a human, mm -hmm. that the precursors of that are already established in the womb. Similarly, similarly with gender identity. So we know that gender identity is a separate aspect of being human to our biological sex. Mm -hmm. uh, so we know, you know, when a baby is born, that we look at the baby's genitals and a gender is assigned to the baby, you know, based on the genitals that are present. But mm -hmm. even that, we know that, you know, um, you also get intersexed, you know, yeah. babies born. So even the biological sex is a spectrum. But for example, with regards to gender identity, whatever a person's potential gender identity is going to be that they will come to realize and discover, you know, during their life journey of growing up and being socialized, the, the template of what it's potentially going to be is already essentially established in the womb. So like mm -hmm. the baby kind of is born into the world with all of these templates in place that are in various ways similar to many humans, but then also unique and individual. And then the baby is born into a very particular family, home, culture, you know, values, mm. particular, you know, socioeconomic reality, etc. There's so many other factors that become the social context. Yeah. Into which this living baby is born into that then becomes, you know, the next level of experience that um, is going to inform the development of the um, of the baby so for example one of the things i often ask my students at this point of the of the conversation is you know at what age does a, a biological boy child for example have his ex experience their first erections mm. which we know you know the erection being the physiological biological boy's body's way of expressing it's that it is it's experienced pleasure and the body has become you know aroused in response to mm -hmm. the sensation and you know when does that happen for a biological girl child where her vulva swells and you know becomes moist which is the biological equivalent of the you know the erect the erection response in the biological boy child and I often, you know, it's interesting the responses I get, you know, I often still get the, well, probably in adolescence, you know, because of puberty. Mm. And then I'll have the moms in the audience who, who, for example, had a boy child. And I'll say, but I remember my baby boy getting erection while I was breastfeeding him. Absolutely, um, yeah. Essentially, what we do know, the answer to the question is that it happens in the womb. Um, the first wow. erection first vulva swelling and, and moistening as a, and again, as an anatomical, biological response to pleasure because the body becomes physiologically aroused. So the important thing then to understand is a baby is born with these sets of templates and potentialities, but also that the baby is a sensate, alive little being, you know, mm. and um, in, in I'm trained as a clinical social worker um, in the psychodynamic models, but I'm not going to go into that. But in object relations and attachment theory, um, one of the, the what, what students are or people are, are, are taught to understand is that when a baby is born, they are first physically born. A baby, mm -hmm. when they're born, they don't know they're a baby and they don't know I'm here and that's mommy and that's daddy and, you know, 
when a baby is born, they are still the center of the universe. There's no differentiation between them and what is around them. All of that is them. And all of the very early experiences of an infant is through its body and its senses. Mm. Depending on, you know, the degree to which there is more pleasure, caring, holding, containing, nurturing experiences, which then through the baby's experience of their body is experiencing more often pleasure and contentment, which then results in, um, you know, the... The, the, the feeling of that being alive is a safe, yeah. not terrifying lived experience versus an infant who maybe is experiencing deprivation, violence, all kinds of, the, I don't want to get into the negative stuff too much, but we all know that, you know, um, if a baby mm -hmm. is hungry, is cold, is experiencing physical pain, etc., that becomes its initial sense of what being alive is about. And so then, you know, the world's not a safe space, you know, having a kind of a terrified mm. early experience becomes these early template or these not these early lived experiences um mm. so we talk about a baby first being physically born and then so as i've said much of their primitive early experiences is through exactly their senses through their body through touch um through taste through smell all of that and then we do know that you know if there is a some point as further neural development happens, there comes the point that they then talk about that the baby is then psychologically born. There's a mm -hmm. point at which the baby now starts to realize through, you know, that I kind of stop here, and then there is that which is beyond me. Okay. And then they come into a realization in a very primitive way that they are a separate entity. Um, that's often the moment, if I can give an example, you, you'll hear about, you know, there's babies that will be handed to everyone and be happy to hand to be handed to everyone. And then suddenly there's this moment where they become anxious, often yeah. referred to as separation anxiety. Mm -hmm. So that's often kind of a an indication that the child has now developed sufficiently where there is now the psychological birth happening, that mm -hmm. I am now, you know, separate. And then that has a whole, I mean, I've doing that as, as, as the talk today. But what is important to understand is that by the time the child is has a psychological birth, it has primarily been experiencing its, its being alive through its body and experiencing pain and pleasure and frustration and contentment and warmth and all of that. And that is being internalized mm. uh, you know, and, and neurologically mapped and then also as the, uh, you know, the infant becomes into awareness of its separateness, it continues to, you know, have very powerful emotional and psychological experiences now alongside its physical, you know, experiences of, you know, pain, etc. Um, and all of those experiences are being mapped into this psycho, what then we refer to as kind of the very important beginnings of what is psychosexual development of um, of an infant. I'll just to say that I think if people want to go and read more, there's a lot more, there's a lot of research that is beginning, mm -hmm. has been done on this, but the three um, authors I credit with kind of the beginning work. Um, so one of them is controversial is John Money, who wrote the book um, Love Maps. Then there is C.A. Tripp, whose book was actually, I always think is the title was not the ideal title uh, it was, it's called the uh, homosexual matrix but it's about mm -hmm. sexual 
duality and sexual orientation of all the orientations. So kind of the title kind of seems to kind of allude to that it's only dealing with homosexuality, mm -hmm. but actually the whole idea of a sexual orientation matrix. And then um, my, um, uh, oh, just my brain just got hit a blank. So the, and then the third book is um, Erotic Mind. And now for some reason, my brain is doing the shutdown and I'm just now not remembering <laughs> his name. Um, and he's and he's my number one. So this is what happened. And he'll come back to you. Yes, um, so it's John Money, CA Trip, and then um, the author of Erotic Mind, which I just can't believe that just happened to me. But anyway, moving on, it'll jump into my head. We'll get it back. No, don't worry. Wow, Ron, that was so incredibly interesting because, and I can see why it is controversial for people. We don't really want to think about the fact that infants in the womb are experiencing sexual pleasure. It's easy to like compartmentalize, like, oh, look, the heart started beating. Oh my goodness, look, this is happening. They have eyelashes, they have like fingerprints, they have all of these amazing working parts, but we don't like to think that the sexual functioning is working or that there is any kind of experience of pleasure besides the sweet and comforting, nurturing, soft, you know, baby stuff. So yeah. it is awkward for people, but like you say, it doesn't just all of a sudden happen during puberty. And mm. one thing that really like came home to me, it was actually during the Sasha conference in October and um, I was in a workshop and we were invited to think about, I think it was Anil Patterson actually um, hosting the workshop. And we were invited to think about when we knew that we knew when we did we know our sexual orientation and when did we know our sexual gender for the first time and most people in the room were cisgendered heterosexual people myself included and it just struck me that I don't know when I knew it just I just knew I've always just known and then to hear other people in with other parts you know on other parts of the spectrum say the same that they also just knew it was yeah. just something that we were born with. And that's what you're saying. It was a template maybe that was already in place. Um, and then potentially some kind of socialization that's happened that's going to maybe change the final um, expression of that. But it just, it, it was fascinating to me. And what you're saying just underlines that, that we were all born with this kind of stuff in place already. Mm, absolutely. And then just so uh, um, Jack Moran is the name that just eluded me there for, <laughs> for a second. <laughs> Great. Um, no, absolutely. And just kind of another way um, I see it, uh, or another way to think about it is with the templates. Yes, the socialization experience that happens, um, in our understanding, there's nothing in our socialization that causes us to be a particular sexual orientation or a particular gender identity. Mm -hmm. But our socialization, the role that the socialization experience that we have, um, it may influence either the pace, the rate, the degree to which we will come to the actualization of our mm -hmm. sexual orientation and gender identity. So, for example, if someone, you know, is born into a family that has particular worldviews or values um, and are very strict around socialization, let's say around masculine or uh, around gender roles or mm -hmm who you can love or not and how you may express yourself um, then persons for example whose innate meaning their underlying template you know gender identity or sexual orientation for example runs counter to the social context then of course how that child is going to read its environment and also the kind of feedback it's going to get mm -hmm. 
is it going to be chastised? Is it going to be shamed? Is it going to be what, you know, because socialization, yeah. the process of socialization is very powerful. Um, mm. And that may mean then for some, you know, the, the gen aspects of their gender identity or sexual orientation may then have to go into the underground, you know, be repressed. And, and a child, because a child wants to be loved, the child, you know, if they notice, you know, there's a change in a parent's tone of voice, or there's an angry voice, or, you know, um, a child takes everything on itself. So it's, I'm wrong, I'm bad, you know. And um, so they take the cues from their environment and children, like all of us as human beings, we have the capacity to adapt and adjust and change. Mm. The adaptions and the adjustments that sometimes happen, for example, for young people who later may come out and hopefully once they find their true authentic selves and may happen to be, you know, elsewhere on the sexual orientation spectrum other than heterosexual or mm -hmm. elsewhere on the gender identity spectrum other than cisgender, um, it's, you know, it's going to take them, like I said, maybe longer to get there. But they, they may then try and act accordingly because... Yeah the environment is, you know, um, you know, treating them in a particular way. So I just think that's an important, um, really important that we understand that, that you, yeah. you can't socialize a person into a particular, you know, sexual mm. or gender identity. You can, through the socialization, either the experience can be that the person comes to an early, you know, awareness of their true authentic selves and are seen and heard and validated and accepted. And they grow into persons with a healthier self-esteem in relation to that aspect mm -hmm. of themselves versus persons where that's not their experience, where, you know, their environment is not welcoming or affirming or accepting of who they innately are. And mm -hmm. then that can offset, you know, complex aspects of, you know, so you can develop your internalized homophobia, internalized yeah. phobia, and, you know, and then your self-esteem can be significantly affected by that as well. Yeah, thank you. And so I'm really curious to know then if, I'm just thinking about what way I want to take this because it's so fascinating, Ron. You've got so much, um, so much knowledge. I could actually talk to you for hours about that. <laughs> well, can this. I take it in a direction quickly? Yeah, I just want to just a bit. Uh, thanks. I'm being very forward, but you know me, Lisa. We're not <laughs> on a roll. We're on a roll. I like you in that sense. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of spoke about sexual orientation and gender identity. I just want to shift us back into the focus on, um, you know, psychosexual development and our relationship to pleasure. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's so the, this is when we're speaking about, for example, infants and children, and we're talking about psychosexual development. Um, what is what I find, you know, because people are listening with adult ears. So the moment you say child and pleasure and an and and you, they link it to sexuality, they immediately go into an adult mindset, mm. sexuality. And that's that's part of what makes engaging this topic so complicated and and sometimes even triggering for some adults so what i want to say is we need to understand is that what we're talking about is pleasure that as human beings and already as infants as i mentioned we have skin we have nerves we have the ability to see to taste to hear um, and experiences we have is you know that that the infant is experiencing is either experienced along a spectrum of what that it feels good mm. and that is pleasure or you know let's say it's pain or discomfort then that is obviously not pleasure and that's painful and uncomfortable 
And what is important is, and what we need to understand with a, an infant is, as primitive as they are developmentally, they're, experience, they're having these experiences, these feelings, these sensations, and with their primitive neurological level of development, they have to process it. Mm. They have to, you know, it has to be internalized. So um, speaking to that, um, John, um, uh, Jack Morin speaks about um, your peak erotic experiences and your early erotic experiences that are these very important, very early, what are essentially the beginning building blocks of what then, you know, upon which the further develop, psychosexual development is built onto when you get into adolescence mm. and adulthood. So what we need to understand is, so the younger the infant is, the less intellectual or cognitive, you know, capacity is available. When a, you know, a six-month-old baby, you know, is, uh, I don't know, falls over and, you know, bumps its head or its head gets bumped or it has a burn or something, it doesn't have the capacity to go, oh, that was an accident, mm. that's a burn, you know, it's okay, you know, it's, they just feel the pain. Yes. Um, and they don't have, you know, the higher functioning capacities yet. So the primitive, you know, capacities and defense mechanisms that are available is what the infant, you know, has kind of has to use to process its experiences. Yes. So the so so peak erotic experiences are and this can so why is there, you know, kind of a lot of similarity across people around things that they find erotic and pleasurable? is because we also all as human beings have fairly similar experiences, like you know, mm. being held, being contained. Um, but then there are also very specific experiences that happens to a specific infant on a specific day, at a specific moment in time, you know, of a specific intensity, that for that infant, that particular experience in that moment in time is quite an intensive experience, be it either pleasurable or not. And so those are kind of what he means by peak erotic experiences. Then the early erotic experiences are those fairly kind of like, you know, common experiences that no matter, you know, who you are as an infant, we, we, we may all share. But now those are being internalized and mapped into our, what then, you know, is the concept of an erotic map. Um, so the prim our primitive erotic maps are being developed here in early, in early childhood. Um, and what people don't know is we often, those who have done psychology, we learn about defense mechanisms and there's a, uh, you know, wide range of primitive psychological defense mechanisms we can use to try and process various experiences. One of them is called cathecting. So a very primitive de uh, defense mechanism or way that the psyche a primitive psyche especially has available to itself to try and almost like metabolize and especially for example very painful or difficult experiences mm -hmm. is to cathect that experience with pleasure so it's almost right. like a way to kind of like because this experience is so difficult or uncomfortable or painful beyond the capacity of this little infant or child to intellectually mm -hmm. process it so one way the psyche can try and metabolize it in a, in a certain mm -hmm. way of phrasing, it can cathect it with, ple with, a, with, 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 with pleasure. Okay, to so kind of make like, it more manageable, like a spoonful uh, of sugar helps the medicine. There you go. go. 
Absolutely. <laughs> perfect, perfect uh, metaphor there. Um, so there is this kind of cathecting experiences that is available to the to the young infant as they're having various, you know, experiences. Now, mm. speaking to that is, so then this, we need to understand that, and there's, um, there's some excellent, um, Heroin is her name, H, um, she used to teach, she's passed, she used to teach childhood psychosexual development at the Institute for the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality that was in San Francisco. They've unfortunately closed. Um, and she basically has, is one of the authors that literally wrote, uh, you know, did the research where we look at, you know, from birth to six months, six months to a year, from a year to a year and a half, year and a half to two, two to three, and kind of tracking the um, the development of, a, of an infant in relation to pleasure and sensation. And so we know very well now that children are pleasure experiencing and pleasure seeking beings. And mm -hmm. but again, it's important. Remember, we are talking about children. So this is at the level of a child. So we know, for example, you know, um, it's not uncommon to find a baby or an infant, for example, rubbing you know, their genitals against a toy mm -hmm. or a pillow or a blanket because it feels good. Yeah. And what do we do naturally as human beings if something feels good? We do it again and we mm. find ways. And then after a while, if we do it the same way repeatedly, it, you know, kind of loses its intensity. Then we have the, abil the ability to then try and adjust and adapt to try and reef, almost like kind of fire up that, you know, that um, pleasure experience again. And that's as applicable to children as it is to us as adults that get very creative in trying to spice up our sex lives. Oh, yeah. When it comes okay. to children is they explore pleasure. You know, mm -hmm. um, I, I know I, just a while ago, a report was written that one of the most common reasons around age two that little girls are taken to the emergency room is because they've accidentally pushed a toy or something, you know, up in, inside their vagina. Um, because kids, you know, will, you know, and I remember the first time I was told this, like, because I, I remember that as a kid, you know, where, where parents, especially grandparents, like to, like, let the little, you know, kids sit on their leg and you do the rocking horse, you know, when you kind of hold their hands and <laughs> rock them up and down. And the child is, it, it's really kind of delightful. It's delightful because there's pressure and, you know, um, rubbing mm -hmm. against their genitals, you know. And wow, yeah, that's going to make a lot of people squirm, <laughs> I think, Ron. <laughs> Again, but that's the thing is we need, and it's okay, you know, yeah. and, and you will find, a, a, you know, a, a child will find their genitals. So it's not uncommon, for example, I've had so many parents tell me horror stories that were like, you know, their little kid likes to kind of like be naked and they're fine and they're like all sitting watching TV and then mommy looks down and clearly, you know, little Susie, you know, two-year-old is rubbing her genitals and, mm. you know, and, and because it feels good or feels nice. And then, you know, my work often then with parents is around, you know, so how to deal with those kinds of experiences, so how to normalize, mm. you know, to be able to say to a little two-year-old, you know, mommy knows that when you touch there that that feels really nice and that's okay. But then, you know, there's things we do when we're all together and then there's things that we do on our own. So it's okay mm. to touch there, um, but that's something, you know, when you're in the bath by yourself or you're in your room. So that kind of very early, you know, um, you know, parenting of, you know, and understanding, and this is why we need to have these conversations, why we need yeah. to realize 
you know, the fact that children are pleasure experiencing and pleasure seeking beings is because how we as the adults, you know, raising kids, mm. we need to understand this so that we can respond appropriately oh, yeah. in a way that's affirming and sex positive and age appropriate um, for so that the child, you know, for the for the, you know, the best interest of the child in the moment, but Amazing. also understanding that how we are responding now is setting very specific, you know, experiences in place that's going mm -hmm. to inform the ongoing psychosexual development. So if we're going to shame a two-year-old for touching their genitals, you know, spank a little boy's bot bottom because, you know, he mm -hmm. was playing with his penis or, you know, you walk into a room and, you know, two little kids are kind of showing each other's genitals, you know, kind of like being just curious and they then get a big hiding or yelled at and shouted at. Yeah. All of those experiences are internalizing things like, you know, about part of their body is bad or wrong. Certain mm. feelings experiences are are bad. And then yeah. that all folds into and 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 kind of is, is part of the ongoing furthering psychosexual development, you know, that happens for us. Yeah, which is why your work is so important, because I think as parents, we already come with our own, you know, our own templates and our own socialization and our own shame. So yeah. sometimes when you see your child doing something like that, it can bring up such a lot, right, for individuals yeah. who just think, oh, my goodness, that's disgusting. Don't do that. Don't touch yourself there. That's horrible, especially, I think, for girls and people with vulvas. I think when they're playing with themselves as children, it's just, oh, like, you know, the amount of shame and embarrassment that comes up. I don't, I mean, I think it would be amazing if parents really could just normalize and validate and then give a certain, like you said, give a direction of a safe way to do this that is more socially acceptable without mm. adding any layers of shame. Wow. And something that I just also just wanted to clarify, because you were talking about peak erotic experiences mm. and 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 children being pleasure seeking, but these aren't exactly like erotic in the way that we would think with our adult minds, right? A child, Absolutely. a child's peak erotic experience. What could that be, and how might that impact a child when they grow up? Exactly. That's a really, really good question. I always kind of jokingly, um, you know, say because uh, when I when I teach this, you know, to my social work students, for example, I mean, the literature will say like at age three, four, five already. You know, now that there's more neural development and more cognitive capacity, uh, you know, and, and children now have the capacity for imagination, mm -hmm. um, the literature says that, you know, in relation to pleasure, uh, you know, young kids can also start to develop fantasies. And then wow. the minute you say that, people go, Arr! and what <laughs> is the about is you immediately are projecting onto that you know what what you what you understand fantasies as an adult do and i mean obviously i'm a sexologist so i speak quite bluntly <clears throat> and when i make that point i would say and of course the father the four-year-old is not having a fantasy of having an orgy over the weekend <laughs> But that's the kind of we think when we think of fantasies, yes, it doesn't feel right that we have that conversation when we're talking about a young child or any child. I mean, I mean, I'll, and a I'll, bit of self disclosure I have, and there's a lot of authors that have written about, you know, their early, their recall of, of very early childhood experiences. Um, and one of my, I mean, I have this, you know, early experience that I can remember. I used to have these toys, these toy soldiers. Um, that I somehow, and I can remember 
um, you know, I, at first kind of, I, I was I was a pillow humper as a baby, a, a young mm -hmm. kid. I remember that, <laughs> that remembering that if I pulled the pillow tight between my legs and I rubbed, that it felt really, really nice. Mm. And I'm probably about four or five years old. And I remember even what I realized later was, you know, a, an orgasm was I, and then it, I used to get this really intense feeling that felt like I was going to make a wee-wee, but I didn't wee-wee. Uh, <laughs> And I realized, as with my adult knowledge, that that was obviously a little, it was an orgasm. I was having, yeah. I wasn't ejaculating. I hadn't gone through, you know, you know yes. yet. And then I remember, you know, kind of clearly having these soldier toys and kind of keenly waiting for bedtime um, because then I would, you know, push this toy, you know, in between my legs and, and rub against it. But remembering kind of anticipating bedtime because yeah. I would then be on my own. But that's and that, that's exactly the point is is it is at the developmental level of where the child is at. Yeah. And, and because yes, we're not comfortable having these conversations, we haven't normalized, you know, the the, the as I say, the pleasure seeking uh, you know uh, and capacity for pleasure that children have. Mm -hmm. uh, that yeah we we aren't knowledgeable about this we haven't normalized it that yeah and as you've alluded to it triggers so much of the parents and the adults own insecurities mm. and shame stuff um that then ends up being projected onto the child that informs how adults then are reacting yeah you know, and then you get this generational perpetuation of what then became, I mean, we had, it was at the end of, end of the 1990s, early 2000s, where we had this big move, the sex positivity move, where it was realized that most communities around the world were sex negative. And sex negative because we've had this generational carryover of the repetition of this very shame-based, you know, um, idea of thinking about sex and sexuality which then yeah we project that onto the children it informs how we raise them they internalize it and you have this generational repetition yeah. um, which is why i think it might even be a good a good time to mention that not only do adults sometimes feel triggered by themselves as parents dealing with children who've gone through this but also the fact that you just disclose something so openly that many of us would never ever want to talk about that we maybe have these early memories too and they can often be completely shrouded in shame right i've got something i can remember you know and i'm sure so many of us do and we think oh, i'm so glad nobody would ever know about that you know because yeah. we, we make that mean something about ourselves as people that we maybe explored in a way when we were younger so mm. your work is also and this message that you're sharing today can also help us to normalize that it's okay yeah. that was normal part of our development mm. absolutely and then if you want to go into another trajectory where understanding psycho, you know, especially childhood psychosexual development and how fundamental and, and the fundamental it roles, it role it plays, sorry, in kind of setting kind of the early building blocks of, you know, every individual's psychosexual development is um, another area that I, that I'm, you know, I, I work in is, um, is in, you know, the field of persons with, you know, di well, just the sort of field, the, the field of diverse, um, you know, um, what's the word? It's just, you know, uh, people's, you know, turn-ons and turn-offs. So BDSM yes. and fetish, you know, I often have people say to me things like, so, you know, how, you know, 
foot fetish, yeah. you know, or someone into being spanked or um, someone, yeah. you know, that's into power exchange and either wants to be the dominant or the submissive, you know. Where do, and I'm using inverted quotes here that you can't see because we're on radio, like where does this weird stuff come from? <laughs> and that's also where early childhood psychosexual development helps us understand how it can normalize that. And especially, for example, the, the talking about, you know, peak erotic experiences and early erotic experiences um, is where the origins of, remember I said that there's, you know, there are fairly, fairly universal things you'll find amongst most human beings like mm -hmm. a lot of people will enjoy you know kissing because you know oral stimulation is pleasurable during you know feeding as okay. a child for example um but then there's going to be those peak erotic experience that might be unique and specific at a particular moment in time and what people need to understand is by the time we get to about you know two three four we are now you know separate beings we're no longer mm -hmm. just the center of the universe and a child is having both experiences through their physical senses, you know, skin, so skin, touch, smell, vision, etc. But they're also having emotional and psychological experiences. Mm. And are also either pleasurable when they're very happy and joyful and excited about something, or when they're frustrated and angry. Yeah. And those are also so emotions also have to be processed and remember yeah. i spoke about cathecting things um, yes. uh, okay so a few examples i'll have people say that i'll say the most common foot uh, fetish is a foot fetish so people will say like well okay so a foot how mm. the heck does a foot become eroticized <laughs> and i know you know the story because I, I but i've been for the please tell it i love it i mean if you think of a fairly common experience of the little baby that's just starting to learn to crawl and we know, you know a child wants to be close to the caregiver then it feels a bit brave to kind of like maybe take one or two crawls away and then return. Now think about the baby that for the first time crawls quite a distance away. So they're excited about, you know, being attracted to kind of, you know, individuating a bit and there's a toy at a distance. Mm. And they, they, they get to a point where it's exciting and then it becomes scary because now mommy or the caregiver feels far away and the anxiety overwhelms them and they turn around and they have this desperate need to get back as fast as possible. And they crawl very quickly. And at that moment that the caregiver kind of catches the child and they feel the hands, that gives them that immediate psychological experience of, you know, I'm saying, what, mm -hmm. what are they seeing in front of them on the floor? Is the foot. Yeah. In that moment of oh, elation, I'm back, I'm safe. You know, <laughs> there is this image of a foot. So a foot kind of being internalized together with that moment of excitement. Isn't yeah. that strange to think that an association with pleasure and a foot could be internalized into a person's mapping? Absolutely. Another and example just, of, yeah, so go for it, yeah. sorry, Lisa, if you don't I was going to say that it's just wonderful that I think people feel ashamed sometimes of fetishes like this. They maybe don't know where it's come from. You know, they think, why am I feeling so aroused by foot? And it just it's just great to help us just understand a little bit more about ourselves. But please continue. I need to hear all of them. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just because what we are, uh, taking it into the emotional psychological arena. If we think of the potty training stage of development, besides that it's about potty training and, you know, often mommies or parents want babies off the nappies as soon as possible because they're expensive. Mm. <laughs> and they just need to get baby, you know, onto the potty. Um, but it's also a power struggle because baby doesn't want 
to use the body. Babies quite mm -hmm. happy, you know, doing what they're doing in the nappy and having themselves clean. <laughs> so there is a bit of a power struggle. The parent mm -hmm. wants something, and it's not necessarily what the baby wants. So now there's this power struggle that happened, the frustration, you know, I, mm. keep, I keep having to kind of like be told to use the potty or whatever. So then you have the, you know, the, the parent has the power and the child feels kind of powerless in that moment. And I'm using a more nebulous example because obviously there's other examples as well where mm -hmm. parents can be more disciplinarian in their approach, more authoritarian in their approach. I mean, there's various ways that, you know, children are disciplined, for example. But essentially, in the core of it, there is power. There's yeah. the one who has power and the one who doesn't have power. And in that moment, that is highly frustrating for the infant. So they have the, they can internalize both their experience of feeling powerless in that moment, but also they take in this other that has power. Mm. So... That has to be internalized. And yeah. power and or submission can be cathected. So okay. that's strange that later playing mm. with power in a relationship, you know, yeah. to consciously now choose to be the submissive or to step into the role of the dominant is experienced as pleasurable and as fun. So where does power, you know, possibly come into a person's erotic map? Yeah, this is so interesting. Psychological experience. Mm. Then take it a little bit to the extreme because we always like want a bit of the, you know. So, for example, I'll have people say, okay, but then let's look at something like the scat scene. So, how people that are into, for example, feces, um, you know, a person who is, I don't know, roused by having a partner mm. under a glass table and they watch a partner basically take a dump you know, on the glass, and that's very arousing for them, and they masturbate to that. And people go, oh, yeah. you know, how sick, you know. Yeah, that's hard for people to understand. Mm. Now you go, now we think of, now let's go, let's go back to potty training. So we're trying to get little Johnny to kind of use the potty. We want him off the, you know, the nappies. And we're going to use positive reinforcement. <laughs> for example. So the first time Johnny successfully sits on the potty and actually takes a dump in the potty, Oh yeah, he gets celebrate. Tommy goes, "My good boy, we clap hands, we take this question, Granny. What a good boy you've been!" And <laughs> Granny says, "Well done." And there's this absolute moment when oh, the yeah. child has taken a dump, and it's getting all this positive reinforcement because developmentally yeah. the parents are very happy, but the child isn't going, "Oh, mommy's happy that I've now finally mastered using the potty. I'm going to get off the nappy soon." It's like, I just did this thing that I felt a certain sensation in my body yeah. and smell mm -hmm. here, and everyone around me is happy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And you're right. The, the interesting thing is the connection to the smell as well, because there's such a, like an attachment between certain smells and memories, right? Absolutely. So. You know, like you can smell a sun cream. Okay, I didn't always live in South Africa. So when I went on a holiday, the sun cream was like, oh, that holiday moment. But yeah. this is also a really strong smell and a very powerful emotional response. Like, that is so interesting. Absolutely. And there's a lot, for example, if you look around, you know, um, latex and rubber, mm. being part of fetish, um, you know, um, gear. If you mm -hmm. think of so many of the 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 the, uh, the the equipment with babies wow, so for yeah. example the plastic that you put over the nappy the yeah. lining in the in the cot um 
So exactly that. There are so many, um, you know, smells around an infant that is being taken in. Yeah. And there is a direct connection between the kind of materials and smells that is happening, you know, in early mm -hmm. childhood that can be linked to. Yeah. It's often included in fetish, you know, gear and equipment and clothing. So again, Absolutely. so the point is, it's not abnormal. It's not something that kind of comes out of nowhere. Mm. There is a psychosexual developmental progression um, that happens for us, as we've said, from the womb to the yeah. tomb. From the and womb to the tomb. We are uncomfortable to talk about in the womb and that very early, you know, childhood stuff. We'll basically look from puberty onwards. Then a person can understand why people think certain things are odd and strange and out of the ordinary and where the hell does that come from. But mm -hmm. it's because we haven't included this early lens. And yeah. now if we really understand and normalize the early childhood stuff, then a lot of what we see in later, you know, adult sexual, um, you know, uh, in the erotic maps of adults actually makes sense. So it's not yeah. a pathology. So you can depathologize things. We can demystify things. And we can pull away the shaming and the blaming yeah. and the judging that happens with aspects of people, you know, that are parts of people's adult sexuality. Because actually, it all has an origin. Yeah, and it all makes sense when you put it that way, Ron. Thank you so much for explaining. I just think that's it. They're normalizing. They're helping everybody who's listening here today to not only maybe understand more about themselves, which is powerful, but to also understand more about each other, maybe their partners, maybe their children, maybe just other people in society, to just know that we are all normal we're all dealing with our own set of unique templates and experiences and we're all okay it's okay <laughs> thank you oh that that's the summary we're all okay <laughs> Absolutely. thank you so much ron i really appreciate your time i would love for you to share where people can come and find you if they want to learn more about you and your work sure um it's probably the two most i'm i'm not so I am on Facebook, um, and so if you just look, Ronald Adenal von Straten, uh, took my husband's surname when we got married as well. Um, but probably um, you can find me on LinkedIn, where a lot of my professional and academic, um, you know, profile is. So Ronald Adenal von Straten on LinkedIn, and then also if you go to, um, you know, the UCT website, the www.socialwork.uct.ac.za my staff profile is on the university um you know uh, website as well fantastic thank you again ron i just want you back on already because yeah <laughs> i could honestly use up your whole monday and talk to you all day thank you ron thank you what did you think about that conversation with ron adenal about psychosexual human development i find this stuff so fascinating I mean, there were so many tangents we could have gone on in that conversation. We could have spoken for days. But I really want to know, what do you think? Did you enjoy this conversation? Come and let us know your comments, your suggestions, your thoughts. I'm over at Twitter at InBedWithLisa. And if you'd rather stay anonymous, that's completely fine. You can email me, hello at InBedWithLisa.com. I'm so glad that you stuck around for this show. I cannot wait to see you. I'll be back again at the same time next week. And remember, if you've got any suggestions, any topics you'd like me to cover or somebody you think I should really interview, then let me know. I'm here for all of your feedback. Have a fantastic week and I'll see you next time. Bye.